There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Sheldon Epps, Senior Artistic Advisor at the Historic Fords Theater in Washington, D.C., just penned the new book, My Own Directions, A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater. He joined me to discuss his journey from Broadway to Pasadena Playhouse in California, as well as his TV directing career from Frasier to Friends to Girlfriends, as his new holiday movie, Christmas Party Crashers, premieres on BET Plus tomorrow. My name is Sheldon Epps, and the name of the book is My Own Directions. And it's subtitled, it's A Black Man's Journey in the American Theater. It's McFarland Publishing, and it just came out a couple weeks ago. So first of all, where can we pick it up? I assume uh, Amazon or anywhere, really, right? Yeah, Amazon's the best way, Amazon Books. Okay, cool. Actually, we should tell everyone that, that you're currently the Senior Artistic Advisor at Ford's Theater here in D.C., so that's the D.C. connection, but you've done a ton of stuff at other acclaimed theaters across the country, but what inspired you to put pen to paper here finally? Well, I've had a pretty uh, distinctive journey as uh, one of the few Black leaders of a major arts organization, uh, Pasadena Playhouse in California. I was artistic director there for 20 years. And for many of those years, I was one of the only Black persons who was head of a major arts organization, or the only one in terms of theater companies. So I thought I had a pretty unique journey in the American theater and something to say. And with the rise of um, discussions about racism and race and um, equality and inclusion that took place in 2020, and the Black Lives Matter movement, I was motivated to uh, sit down and write the book and tell my story and hope that it would be inspirational to others. Great, great. Well, I would love to get to some of the, you know, career highlights and even, you know, some of the, you know, social commentary that you're even talking about just now. But uh, let's let's try to do it chronologically if we can. I mean, uh, remind us where exactly I mean, and you were born in Los Angeles, but did you actually grow up around there? Or did you was it New Jersey, I think? Uh, both. You're right, both. <laughs> I was born, born in L.A., in southeast L.A., in Compton Hospital. I lived in Los Angeles until I was about, I think until I was 10 years old. And then I moved to Teaneck, New Jersey, which is right outside of New York City. And that's where I got in the habit of going to Broadway theater and then started doing plays in junior high school and high school. So that was the real beginning. Yes, that's what I was going to ask you, if there was any certain productions you remember from the, you know, middle school, high school days. Did, did you know, or did you star or direct any any particular plays that we could give a shout out to the high school? <laughs> uh, I did. I, I, in Teaneck High School, in my senior year, I actually played Henry Higgins in My Fair Lady. 
You didn't say it, isn't it Henry Iggins? <laughs> <laughs> no, I pronounced it the right way. You Henry did it the right. Oh, because you are him. So you're all about it. Because I was the character. Yeah, yeah, you're not, so yeah, you're not was, Eliza. <laughs> that was a particularly big starring role early in my, early in my career. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And you said you used to journey in, since you're in Jersey, you could journey in to see Broadway shows in, in, the, in New York City. Do you remember any formative ones that, you know, that you saw at, at an early age, you know, during, during those trips into Broadway that, that just blew your mind? I do. I'm dating myself now because you can go look up what year it was. But yeah, I saw Sammy Davis Jr. in Golden Boy. That was really uh, an amazing performance. I saw wow. Bailey in Hello, Dolly with Cap Calloway. And then uh, a great thing is that I saw when she was very young, I saw Leslie Uggams in Hallelujah, Baby. And years later, I was able to work with Leslie several times after having this big teenage crush on her. So that was kind of, it's kind of great. You got to see some real legends, including Sammy Davis Jr. Wow, that that's incredible. Yeah. All right, so so this is I, I assume during this time, you know, you're you're you know you're you're falling in love with the theater. It's it's yeah. percolating as something you might want to do. But then, um, when when do you say, all right, I'm going to make a go of this? Um, I, is is it when when you're at Car Carnegie Mellon for college, or when when is the 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 actual pivot? I'm doing this for my life. Uh, it was really my senior year of of high school. Um, up until that time, I kind of wanted to be a, a trial lawyer, which I guess was also equally dramatic. Um, <laughs> so uh, in senior year, around about the time that I got to play Henry Higgins, I said, oh, I, I think I might be pretty good at this and said that I wanted to make a career of it. And my parents were surprisingly supportive, but they did insist that I go to college and get a degree. So I applied to Carnegie Mellon University, which had a great training program, and went to school there as an acting major for four years and graduated from there. And didn't you also do some stuff at Brooklyn Academy of Music, at, but, but the acting program? Um, I, that, was, that was one of my last jobs as an actor. Uh, there was something called BAM Theater Company for a while, which was a very, very good uh, theater company, kind of like Lincoln Center, except in Brooklyn. Right, right. I was in a production of Julius Caesar with uh, Richard Dreyfuss. And really? Rene Auberginois, George Rose. Yeah, very illustrious production. Actually, not a very good production, <laughs> but a production that got a lot of uh, recognition because it was the same time that Richard won his Oscar for Goodbye Girl. Right, right, exactly. Um, all right, cool. So that would have, I guess, goodbye, girl. That would have been late seventies. So then, uh, as you moved your way into the eighties, you, you started directing some shows off Broadway in Blues in the Night. I guess it made it onto Broadway too. I guess in what eighty two. Um, yeah. But tell tell me about um, uh, when you sort of embraced. Because you did some acting before that. But when did you sort of embrace that I'm going to go in, into into the directing route? Why why did that take center stage for you? Well. Um... As I said, I, I studied as an actor and I and I worked after college pretty frequently as an actor and made a living and, you know, did the combination of soap operas and commercials and then stuff off Broadway and regional theater and had a pretty good working career, but just felt sort of unsatisfied and uh, not totally nourished by it. So I started a theater company with uh, four friends that I'd been to Carnegie with. 
And in our second year of running the theater company, the director who got to be a pretty significant director himself, um, artistic director named Norman Renee said, you know, I really think you think like a director. You're a good actor, but I think you might be a better director. So why don't you try directing? Which was a generous thing for him to say. And I, I tried it and felt that I was good at it and then started to work as a director. So I don't remember ever making a conscious decision to stop acting. I just sort of leaned into the path that seemed right for me at that moment in time and never looked back and was always happy as a director. Awesome. Awesome. Um, tell me about Play On. I guess you conceived it, but it was a like a Duke Ellington musical um, and yeah. adapting Twelfth Night Shakespeare, that kind of thing. But uh, reset in 40s Harlem. How, how did you get the idea to sort of do that that 40s Harlem reset of that material, bring in the Duke Ellington? Because I think it, it, it gosh, and three Tony nods, Andre DeShields was in all kinds of great stuff. Yeah, uh, this was when I was at the Old Globe Theater in San Diego. I was the associate artistic director at the Old Globe and was encouraged by the artistic director, Jack O'Brien, to think of a big project uh, to sort of uh, put my mark on. And I'd always loved the play Twelfth Night. I'd, I'd been in the play twice, so I knew the play well. And Twelfth Night already has a lot of music in it. And I have to say, it was one of those, you know, completely divine inspirations where I said, I think I want to do a version of Twelfth Night with Duke Ellington music and set it in Harlem in the 1940s with no rhyme or reason, just, you know, one of those ideas that comes blazing to you like a light bulb. <laughs> uh, but I promised myself that I wouldn't do it unless I could really get the songs to tell the story. And because Duke Ellington's music is so, so vast and has so much breadth and expansiveness, uh, I really felt that I found the songs that told the story. So um, I did a scenario of the story and then worked with the playwright Cheryl West to create the book and just did a huge amount of research to uh, find the right songs to move the story along and define character and um, yeah, it did very well. Love it, love it. All right, so then moving right along then, we're almost to the point in your career where um, you take over as Pasadena Playhouse. But before I even do that, because I know that was your longest tenure, and I want to save that for in one second. But before that, I know you started dabbling in a little, some TV episodes too. You directed some episodes of what? Like Smart Guy, Sister, Sister, Everybody Loves Raymond and Frasier yeah. and Friends and all kinds <laughs> of girlfriends. My wife loves that show. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, what, what was it like sort of directing Directing, you know, behind the camera as opposed to on stage. Was it, did you find it a natural transition or was there a couple things where you're like, ah, crap, I got to worry about close-ups now? <laughs> uh, part of it was natural because I was, I, I was working, as you just pointed out, in situation comedy. And that's a little like doing a one act, a 22 minute one act play that you rehearse and then you film in front of an audience. So, um, the rehearsing part of it and working with the actors was very natural, but you do shoot it in front of an audience with four cameras. So that was something that took me a while to really get a grasp on. And I had to do a lot of observing over the course of about two years, watching other people do it. 
uh, learning that part of the craft. Um, but over the years, you know, you, you do something often enough, you start to get good at it. So I was, I was just lucky to have pretty major opportunities early on, first with Sister Sister, as you mentioned, but then with Frasier, which I did a lot of. And 22 fan. episodes or something of Frasier? <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. And then five years as producer, director of Girlfriends. Yeah. So it was, uh, I did have to learn the camera part of it, but uh, working with the actors and telling the story was really based in my work in the theater. So Girlfriends was probably, I guess that would be the, I guess if there was one TV show, that'd be the one that you at least, I guess you did like 59 episodes of that and also did some producing. So that I'd say that was probably the one that you were most involved in of, of all the shows. It wasn't a couple episodes here and there. That was, that was diving right in. Yeah. Um, well, just explain, you know, that experience of Tracy Ellis Ross the, and the whole cast, like, um, do you, do you look back and um, do you, do you think it's sort of like an underrated show in hindsight? Do you think it got the, the, credit it deserved i mean i know people talk and my wife raves about it but i mean i feel i feel like it's underrated i think that's true i mean it was uh it was on a smaller network it wasn't on one of the major networks uh it was a time when um frankly black shows just didn't get as much attention as a friends or a fraser did uh so it didn't have a huge audience in its first run. What's interesting is that it's been on uh, cable and streaming for 20 years now. And in that time, many people who didn't watch it initially have come around to it. So I, I meet very young girls now, you know, who weren't even around or old enough to watch it when it was first on, who say, oh, I love that show. That's my favorite show because they just discovered it last year or last month. So yeah, on, on Netflix now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I, I think that's really the sign of a great show when it has that kind of staying power over, you know, two decades. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and you know, and that's the good thing. Uh, I'm sure everything's a double-edged sword. I'm sure there's negatives. But that the positive of the streaming revolution, for sure, is a uh, new generation getting to discover these older shows. Yeah. And now they're back. They think they're new. They think they're new. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, right. or, or people who've loved the show in the original run can watch it over and over and over again, which people do. Right, exactly. It's instead of waiting for the reruns on TV, they, now they can dial it up whenever they want. Um, right. Great. And and real quick before we move off of TV land, which Friends episodes did you do? Do you even remember if you can't remember the titles, but like, you know, like what was going on in the plot or, on any of them? Uh, the most significant one was um, called the one where Rachel tells Ross when uh, Rachel was pregnant and she, they were actually in the hotel room and she told Ross that she was pregnant and the baby was his. Significant because they, she, she told him right before the act break and the laugh was so big that they put the act break there. And when we came back from the commercial, they were still laughing at his expression. So that was <laughs> the biggest one. I also did one called the one with the soap opera party. Oh yeah, of course. And then there was another one, I can't remember the title of it, but when the baby just wouldn't stop crying and was driving Jennifer Aniston crazy. 
Well, you got to be a part of TV history with, with that one. That That's incredible. Yes. I'm Bradley Trainer, And I'm Don McClain. We have a podcast called Blinded by the Item. A blind item is gossip about a celebrity with their name left out. It's a guessing game and you can play along. The item might be like, this A-list star carries a Birkin bag worth more than the average person's house to the gym to work out. Pretty sure that's J-Lo. And P.S. The person behind all of this is Chris Jenner, LLC. We drop a new episode every weekday so the fun never ends. Blinded by the Item. Listen wherever you get podcasts and watch us on the Blinded by the Item YouTube channel. Um, yep. So friends and then girlfriends and then, uh, all right. And then let's, uh, I think we dabbled in the, in the TV conversation long <laughs> enough. Let's bring it back to Pasadena Playhouse without any, uh, further ado. Cause I mean, that's gosh, you, you were there for what? 97 to 2017 or something like that. So like two, yeah. two decades, 20 years. 20 20 years. years. Yeah. So, um, how did, how did they get in contact with you and, uh, you know, just, just dish on how, how fruitful and, and amazing of a journey that was there. Uh, well, I, I first directed there uh, in the early 90s. Uh, I did a play there right before I went to the Old Globe. And then I was at the Old Globe for four years. And I would come up from San Diego to L.A. to direct at the Playhouse during that whole time. And just about the time that I was ready to leave the Old Globe, um, this position opened up at Pasadena Playhouse. And because I'd been working there sort of annually, they extended the invitation for me to come and work. And I was already planning to move to LA. So it was kind of synchronicity that all those things came together at the right time. And as I was planning a move to the Los Angeles area, I was offered the job and I love the theater and think it's a beautiful facility and I think LA has a great theater community, a great unsung theater community. So it's just a place where I thought I could make a difference and and really build something, which I was able to do. You definitely did. Um, didn't you do it at one point there, uh, a, a big successful production of Fences with Lawrence Fishburne and Angela Bassett? What was that like? I mean, that's a star-studded <laughs> version right there. <laughs> it was indeed. I, I still sometimes pinch myself to see if that really happened um, because it was just a matter of uh, sort of divine timing that uh, Lawrence Fishburne was available, Angela Bassett was available, Wendell Pierce, who's on Broadway right now and Death of a Salesman was also in that production, Orlando Jones. So as I said, it was just great, great timing that uh, here we had the opportunity to do one of August Wilson's best plays and all of those tremendous actors wanted to play those roles and were available at the same time. So it was uh, really a theatrical explosion of talent on the stage, I think. Yeah, I would say, and you're, you're trying to orchestrate that explosion at the same time. Uh, well, there's, there's so many, I mean, you did 12 Angry Men and so many different um, shows at Pasadena Playhouse. Do you have, yeah. have a, um, I know people don't want to play favorites, but I'll ask you anyway, <laughs> do you, do you, do you have one that stands out in your mind uh, for, you know, as just personally gratifying or particularly successful, got the best feedback? I don't know. Give me something to run in this piece. <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly, certainly that production of Fences, absolutely, um, which broke records at the time as the, the best-selling straight play in the history of the theater. Um, we did a production of Play On there at a time when uh, 
the the theater needed a big hit and it was a big hit. Um, I did a production of Blue and that was kind of extraordinary because it had Felicia Rashad and Diane Carroll in the same cast. So, you know, two amazing icons of American theater in the, in the same production. And then that production of 12 Angry Men that I did, which I later did at Ford's Theater as well, was, was really significant and wonderful. Absolutely. Well, thanks for doing the, the segue for me. But yeah, Ford's Theater is where we're, us in D.C. now we get to enjoy your extreme, amazing talents. Uh, you got you. When were you appointed? I guess it was 2020 during the whole uh, pandemic. Uh, you became right. senior artistic advisor at Ford's. What was it like getting tapped to be at such a his, I mean, it's such a historic, historic place. I mean, needless to say, Lincoln and everything, the rest. But um, mm-hmm. man, it's also just ar- artistically, it's a it's a great theater, too. So just talk about how, how big of an honor it is to be steeped in, in such history. And now you get to add your own page to that history. Yeah, well, certainly there's there's very few theaters in America in the world which have such uh, an illustrious history and significant history because of the events that we all know that take place took place there. But really for me, what drew me to it is that it is a living theater. It's not a museum theater. It's not about what happened, you know, over a hundred years ago. It's about what's happening on the stage right now. And uh, with Paul Tedrow and the artistic team there, there's a real focus on artistic excellence, on diversity, on, um, being adventurous, which many people don't consider the theater that, but it is. And of really trying to do work um, at the top of the heap, at the top of the theatrical game. So all of those were the things that attracted me to the position. And um, I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to work there and to support other artists and help create new audiences. You mentioned that they're, they're, it's adventurous and uh, and also, you know, uh, trying to be more and more diverse every day. Uh, talk about how th- those are in- important initiatives for you. I mean, um, my buddy Craig Wallace plays Ebenezer Scrooge there now after Ed Giro yeah. did it for many years. And yeah, yeah. I mean, I, th- I think the theater is putting their money where their mouth is in terms of diversity. But h- how do you see how do you see where it stands and where do you want to take it? Oh, I think that's that's absolutely true. You know, after. After all the work I did at Pasadena Playhouse to to really kind of make it a model of diversity, I I wasn't interested in going to a theater that was beginning that project uh, or beginning the focus on that. Uh, Ford's Theater was already very much involved in that. As I said, Paul Tedrow completely is devoted to that. So I was just coming to Uh, further something that's already in process, not to begin something, but to keep it going, um, to make it evolve. We have a playwrights commissioning program program for BIPOC playwrights, uh, as well as the programming choices, which all focus on representing artists and the community of DC in all of its breadth, all of its colors. Absolutely. And not to get too uh, artistic with you, but hey, who am I talking to? You're Sheldon Epps. Of course, we can go here. Let, let's get symbolic and transcend a little bit. Let's let's next level this thing. Is that uh, tie that into sort of uh, I mean, I, we don't want to speak speak for Abraham Lincoln, but, you know, the idea of a diverse theater thriving um, 
I don't know. Is there a way we can tie in the history of, of this country and, and, and where we are now in the 21st century uh, through, through that lens at all? Do you got anything, sure. <laughs> anything sure. percolated Absolutely. in that beautiful I mean, brain of yours? <laughs> right. I mean, isn't it, isn't it significant that the theater, this, the building, the theater that honors Abraham Lincoln, who fought, fought and died, in fact, for racial equality, uh, should be continuing to uh, push for equality and diversity in the art of the theater. I mean, what what's more appropriate for that theater than to continue the mission that Lincoln actually died for? It's actually, that's perfect, that's perfect. Um, well, thanks for all the work you're doing. Um, before we run, let's, I mean, we should, we really should, uh, plug the book one last time, you know, it's yes. called my own directions, a black man's journey in the American theater. Um, if you know, they, they heard a brief version of it in this interview, but there's way more to the story if they pick up the book, but you know, is there anything they'll find out about you? Maybe if there's longtime colleagues that, that know and love you, but maybe they pick up the book, what, what are they going to find out about you that maybe they, they didn't know about your, you know, what would they pull from those pages? <laughs> well, you know, sometimes when you're lucky enough to have a very, very blessed and successful career, and to run a theater company for a long time, people people start to think that it was easy, that the journey was easy, that things just automatically fell into place. And I think the book reveals that it it wasn't easy. It was it was tough. It was often angering and frustrating, and trying. And many times when I thought maybe I should just give it up, but I kept going. So. Um, I, I think it will be helpful to people to know that <laughs> behind the, the the brightest stars, there are also clouds, perhaps, and to know that uh, being successful in the arts is never an easy journey. It takes dedication and passion and talent, but also hard work and, you know, the ability to keep yourself going. Well, thanks for keeping it going, and we hope you keep it going for a long time here at Fords and bring some of that um, that, you know, that playhouse magic, uh, over here to DC that we, we <laughs> uh, thank you so much for doing this. Um, and we invite everyone to, to pick up the book and, uh, come see the shows at Ford's and, and, you know, all the stuff you got coming up there. Yes, please do. Shout sister shout is coming up in the spring, a brand new musical about Rosetta Tharp. It's going to be full of great music and great, great singers and performers. So everybody come out and see it. Great. Hey, Sheldon Epps, thanks for doing this. This was, this was great getting to meet you and catch up with you. And uh, you're a legend of the theater. So we're lucky to have you on. Thanks so much. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thank you. All right. We'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. Our theme music is Scott Buckley's Clarion. Remember to give us a five-star rating if you like what you hear. We'll see you next time.
Explain your DNA on, on 10 cases, man. You're inside the police interrogation room with the alleged Potomac River rapist. I'm not guilty on any of this stuff. So calm, so reasonable. Could this be the man who terrorized women for nine years before murdering a brilliant scientist two decades ago? Experience one of the most fascinating true crime podcasts available. Join crime reporter Paul Wagner for Unknown Subject, season three of WTOP's American Nightmare series. Search American Nightmare Podcast on all podcast platforms. I wanted to take a second to tell you about an app I really enjoy. Living in the D.C. area is great, and Podcast D.C. gathers all of the local shows that I like all in one local app. Health, sports, local news, politics, and so much more. Podcast D.C. is the new local app with hundreds of D.C. area podcasts to choose from. I can earn exciting rewards just for listening and share the podcasts I love instantly. Available in the App Store or in Google Play, listen local with Podcast D.C.